Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. We need to be prepared for the future. I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream. You must ready. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. Eventually, I know it's going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hi, I'm Fred Hooper and this is Pacific Prepared. It's a show all about natural disasters, climate change and traditional knowledge and how those things are all connected. And you'll hear about that through stories from right across the Pacific. Each week we work with local reporters. They're on the ground letting us know what's happening in this space and what people want to hear about. On today's show, we'll revisit some stories from throughout 2023. Starting with keeping it safe on boats in the Pacific, we know that a lot of people get around on boats. It's just a way of life, which means there could be accidents. Also, helping scientists to make a map of plant species in the Pacific. How you can help, and it's pretty simple. And how climate change is talked about in schools, and why it's so important. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. You are listening to Pacific Prepared. If you live in the Pacific, you'll know that getting around often means getting in a boat. It's just how it is. In Solomon Islands, for example, there's almost 1,000 islands, so travelling via boat is just going to happen. Solomon Islands Maritime Authority is worried that early warning messages might not be reaching people scattered across the country. Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Gina Kakia has this story from earlier in 2023. So it's, it's really the question for us how we maybe improve uh, the access to people and ensure that they, they get the information, they understand the information and they make the right decision. And it's a very difficult question for us to respond in, uh, if it's effective enough. Terry Neval is the director of the Solomon Islands Maritime Authority, or CIMA in short. CIMA has over the years coordinated many search and rescue missions for people having trouble at sea. In less than five years, Solomon Islands have had two of the worst sea tragedies ever. One, the Envitae Mareho disaster, where 27 lives were lost this month, three years ago, when the ship encountered rough seas caused by Cyclone Harold. The other sea tragedy occurred on U.S. Day a year ago. 14 young lives were lost after they encountered bad weather. Obviously, we had accidents in the past due to bad weather and uh, bad weather was announced in warning and still some ships are left in bad weather or some small boats left in bad weather and unfortunately we lost people at sea. 47 days day and night, body taken over, yeah. 47 days at sea without food rations or water, no sight of land and only the blue sea. 
Saved by the grace of God was how Webster Anisi described his ordeal. Anisi was one of not so many Solomon Islanders fortunate to survive a lost-at-sea experience. Given up for dead by his family, he spent 47 days at sea before being found by the Cascas people of Papua New Guinea. You know for a time, trouble or anything happened, or you, know, you, know, you know for a And the second thing is, you know panic. Because if you fright, then you panic. But you no got him any any good idea or thinking for working out how no by you shall save you. Developing safety messages is one of NDMO's key functions through the National Emergency Operations Centre. NDMO has tried best to make sure that uh, early warning messages are simplified and am tailored to such way people have understand him. And this one me for usually supplement him not a warning set through what Mifola always refer to as what to do informations. Jonathan Tafuariki, director of the NDMO. The Solomon Islands Met Services, or SIMS, is responsible for the first three phases of an early warning system. Through its various weather stations that are located throughout the country and through cooperation with local and international partners, SIMS is able to monitor soil, air and oceanic data, including temperature and rainfall changes, as well as changes in wind speed to keep track of trends and variances across these sectors. We know from science that uh, we'll have we'll have more and more frequent uh, major events, and so we need to be prepared for that. And uh, I know that uh, the Solomon communities they witness that every day, uh, everyday life. They know that the environment is changing. When uh, people have doubt or they ask questions because now they are alerted, then they need to call us. They need to reach through the police station directly through meteorological services, it can be the MRCC 977, and then we'll provide the information and the, the advice. For small craft skippers, a lot still needs to be done. A majority of the travelling in Solomon Islands is by small crafts. To cater for the shortfalls, Sims introduced the raising of flags to notify small craft skippers of weather conditions to allow them to make important decisions before they travel across to another island or the open ocean. The raising of a red flag indicates bad weather, while a blue flag indicates fine weather. The early warning information is usually distributed via radio and digital platforms. Unfortunately, only 3 out of 10 Solomon Islanders have access to the internet, while not many households own a radio. The reach or coverage for radio is also limited. Government agencies, uh, we plan and we provide early warning, we provide advice. This, this decision is with the master, with the captain. He is the one deciding if he leaves the port or not. In some cases, some vessels are safer when they are at sea for bad weather than staying in ports. It's really a decision of the captain. They are the one deciding. So there is no laws for the government to take control and say, no, the vessel don't leave today. So there will be strong advice, uh, directives to do this and that, but uh, it's the decision of the people that take the boat or take the ship to decide not to leave because it's uh, it's not safe to leave. It's their it's their decision, and but they need to take an informed decision, and to take an informed decision, they need to get the early warnings and understand the information and make the right decision. 
Solomon Islands is considered one of the riskiest countries in the world based on its high exposure to natural hazards and limited coping capacity. Between 1940 to 2020, Solomon Islands have experienced 36 devastating disasters. Storms make up 53% of the devastating disasters. Despite the efforts taken by the government and NGOs and development partners, the level of disaster preparedness is considered low at the community level. Improving community preparedness is one of the many priority areas suggested by the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction in its latest status report for Solomon Islands. Gina Kakia from Solomon Islands with that story from earlier in 2023. Pacific Prepared. Trees are vital. As the biggest plants on the planet, they give us oxygen, store carbon, stabilize the soil, and give life to the world's wildlife. They also provide us with the materials for tools and shelter. In Vanuatu, the Department of Forestry is working to make people value trees and their forests through one of its projects called Plants and People. Presley Tofo, a senior botany and conservation officer at the Forestry Department, who also serves as a liaison for the Plants and Peoples Project, is the driving force behind the initiative, which was initially implemented in Dafea Province, Tana, Anaichom and Futuna Islands, south of Vanuatu. Uh, our main focus is to make sure uh, uh, the next generation uh, aware and cherish and value uh, the importance of the resources that are in the forest, especially the trees. So, uh, Vanuatu doesn't have any forest in place, so this is a collaboration between uh, New York Botanical Garden and the um, Institute of Wildlife Science in Chichi, East West Center, Manoa, California State University, uh, Swatsmo University, the IRD. These are the pools of both uh, scientists and, and now PhD students and master students collaborating with the uh, uh, Department of Forest and the national stakeholders to to document the floras of Anuatu. So very soon we will launch uh, the floras of Anuatu and this will be the basis of of uh, the information that we would peel on to uh, support the people or educate the people when Vanuatu is on. Mr. Tofo points out that it is interesting to see the destruction of these resources because people do not recognize the value of these trees or even know that they are endemic trees. So scientific research aids the communities in appreciating and safeguarding all the resources they have in their localities or respective communities. In reference to, to uh, the documentation that has been done in the Fair Province, it's, it's vital because it helps the team as well to uh, showcase the endemic species that we had in Vanuatu, which are unique. For instance, we have the Cariota uh, uh, Obiophilus, which is the snake palm, which is only found on the island of Tana. And also Carboxylum microspermum. It's a special palm that can be found only on South Tana, North Tana, 
im Zahnehe an der Neige und so. These are some of the endemic palm species that, you know, people would not hardly, I mean, they won't hardly, you can hardly find this somewhere around the world, so it's only found on these particular areas where the natural stands are so. It's important to apply the the measures of custom forest conservations in order for communities to protect those resources and value those resources. As part of the initiative, an app-titled Checklist Plants of Vanuatu will soon be released. With the advancement of technology, it will be simpler to educate people on various trees on this platform. We've decided to, to do another uh, partnership as well with uh, Dominic Ramik, uh, it's actually from Jack Republic. Uh, so he assisted us to develop an app called the Jackless Plants for Vanuatu. So this is one of the mechanisms that would help uh, individual persons or forest officers or schools to to know about the names of the plants. So the apps will be launched soon and um, uh, definitely uh, people want the uh, us to provide all the names, especially with the scientific names of those plants because every information will be on the apps and uh, the apps will be accessed everywhere without internet and now. Uh, it's one of the mechanisms that hopefully uh, people and students around Vanuatu would have access of it and would be very helpful in terms of educational aspect as well. Mr. Tofo recently had the opportunity to give a guest lecture to students at the National University of Vanuatu, which he considers as a breakthrough for the initiative. This is one of the breakthroughs that we had, uh, especially the providing the information in, in relation to uh, the climate uh, variability or uh, the distributions of plants in regards to the uh, climate variability. So uh, with the results of the work that has been done on Tapia province, uh, this actually work that has been exposed to the students in the classrooms and uh, the students really appreciate the scientific results that has been obtained in the field to educate him about the importance of uh, plant species in terms of uh, climate variability since, you know, climate change is a very sensitive issue since affecting the livelihood of the people, so. A hub of biodiversity in Vanuatu, the Vanuatu National Aquarium, is where people can access this information or the collections that are done are based collections where every piece of information provided is based on the collections that have been made. It is estimated that the Vanuatu National Herbarium has 20,000 plant specimens that have been collected over the years. These collections were made back in 1774 when James Cook arrived in Vanuatu from his second voyage to do the plant collections. Michael Palik and Gregory Plonget from the New York Botanical Garden started the project in 2012 and it was officially launched by the Department of Forestry, Environment and Cultural Center. It was a national undertaking, involving all relevant national stakeholders as well as provincial governments, chiefs and individual participants. Now that it has been over 10 years, they are beginning to see the results of the field work they have done and how it has affected the livelihoods of the populace.
Tofo continues by saying that they also had solid working relationships with other universities they collaborated with, since they knew they had strong collaborations in place to support, maintain and handle every piece of data in the event of a crisis, particularly with regards to plants. Most of the of the people that we worked with are the professors, the deans, and the PhD and the master students. So we exchange ideas and also they contribute to give some of the specimens in their bearings as well. He says that funding organizations make sure they collect the data and convey the information to the public so they are aware of the species present in Vanuatu because the population of Vanuatu is expanding quickly and people are placing demands on these resources. Vanuatu Sanma province in the north of the country will be the next focus for the Plants and People project after Tafea province. Thanks to Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Florence Fanua for that story from Vanuatu earlier in 2023. Disaster is part of our life and recovering is also part of our life. As you see, they're smiling despite the devastation. That's how we are. You are listening to Pacific Prepare. In 2016, Tropical Cyclone Winston hit Fiji as a Category 5 system, the highest rating for a cyclone. The Lao Island Group are also in the road of Cyclone Winston. It's the island group southeast of Fiji's main island. As a result, some of the farmers lost their entire crops. And since then, communities have been looking at ways to help protect their land. Fijian Broadcasting Corporation journalist Sanyani Boiler has this story from Fiji. Climate change is a daily issue faced by the villagers of Ndalidoni on Vanuambalavu Island in the Lao Group. This has been an ongoing issue. Sometimes the water goes into the village when it's high tide or when there is a rainy weather. Our main produce, coconut, was fully wiped out because of T.C. Winston, so we worked with the ministry to help protect our village. The Ministry of Agriculture and Waterways, in an effort to address the issue, built a seawall. We know that uh, this is a need for the villages, so we worked hard to complete it. This will not only protect the village, but also protects the villages, especially our children. We commend the support from the ministry. They constructed the seawall for four years, and it's finally ready now. The nature-based seawall costs $38,000 and is fully funded by the government. It gives a new hope to villages of Ndalithoni as they work to ensure their community is safe from the climate crisis. Fijian Broadcasting Corporation journalist and Pacific Prepared reporter Sanyani Boiler with that story from Fiji. I'm just holding on for dear life here. For women, it's always safety first. They are the first responder. You're listening to Pacific Prepared. This is a class of students in Tonga, singing before starting their day. These students were singing at the very start of the day, just to get that energy out early, so they could then focus on the more traditional style classroom. But what if singing was part of the lesson, the thing that the teacher could use to teach the students? Dr Rossiana Lange is from the University of the South Pacific, and this is exactly what she's been doing and the subject has been climate change. Already the um, curriculum is overcrowded. Uh, however, we could revise it and weave in uh, the climate component of, um, of the curriculum. 
um, not to you know have it as a, a separate subject, but to weave into what's already um, in the curriculum. So at the moment, what is actually what is being taught in terms of climate literacy, and, and what exactly does that look like? I mean, what what would you be teaching young people? Mm. Uh, so currently, um, it's it's an adaptation from climate. So, um, so climate is taught in the upper uh, primary from years five to to year eight, and then in in the high school, it's taught in different subjects as topics in different subjects, uh, more specifically the sciences. Uh, so um, there are compulsory subjects like English, which can be you know. It can be a part of it as not just comprehension, but something that they can do. And, 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 well, I'm happy to say that in the, in the upper secondary, they, uh, they're using it as one of their um, research projects. So it's about 20% of their final assessment. Um, however, it'll be, um, uh, better if it's taught from the lower primary, beginning with, uh, with, early childhood, uh, they can just sing about it because we have um, nursery rhymes, we have uh, uh, poems, we have dances that that talk about um, climate change, uh, the weather and how do you forecast them and what do you do when you see um, indicators. There's a whole range of different things there. So we're talking about teaching about climate change and incorporated in that is also learning about traditional knowledge um, and and learning about the environment in general. So there's, there's quite a few things mixed up together there. Yes, and it's important because um, these children have prior knowledge of these uh, things. All we need to do is to build on what they've already uh, know and and ensure that they're able to to see the value of these things and be able to practice it and be climate ready in whichever part of the world they will be in. Now, you mentioned earlier, too, about song and how that's been used as a tool for schools as well. Are the students actually writing the, the music and the songs themselves? How is that kind of being put together? Well, for us in Fiji, I think music is in our bones. It's in our blood. Anyone can sing you, and anyone can dance. It's, it's, in, it's in our DNA. So... Um, the children themselves uh, wrote the poems. They, some of them, uh, sang, uh, and um, also um, from the um, from from the uh, information they gave, um, had a, a managed to put together a, a video documentary that uh, that we will be sharing. So, so I mean, those are the kinds of things that's, that children that students can produce out of their um, out of their work in school and if they can't find a job but that's something they they can be entrepreneurial it's something they can create their own own uh, jobs with the skills that they they that they've learned in school why does song and music work so well as a learning or an educational tool for us in 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 the indigenous fijian community we learn uh, um through uh, orally as well as practice. Uh, we remember things better um, if we sing them, if we talk about it and um, practice. Uh, not so much uh, uh, writing. So 
So uh, with the repetition of uh, of uh, words in songs, uh, children um, tend to remember better. And with practicing uh, what they have uh, discussed, they also um, um, remember and see the value uh, of their work. Yeah, okay. I, I guess essentially teaching young people more practical things that might be more, I guess, helpful for them going forward? Yes. And also, I think one of the things that we as educators need to know our students and what they need, as well as align it to what the market needs. Mm -hmm. And I think if we look around the world today, children are into um, TikTok. They're into music. They're into uh, dance. And these are industries that we also need to to develop. And uh, if that's how children learn best, then why not? You must have had a lot of fun traveling around, um, recording the the songs and working with young people to make those songs. Yes, uh, it's interesting because um, uh, the the age gap, because they're children, and uh, and uh, for me, I was surprised to see the 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 difference in 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 skill sets yeah. uh, and how it uh, developed um and, and in, knowledge too i guess on climate change yes and uh, and that's what i was uh, discussing with one of my colleagues uh, it proves the standpoint theory uh, very well because they experienced uh, they understand things from their experience so with um with children in kindergarten and the lower primary they uh, they they sang their poems yeah. they couldn't write it so they preferred to just sing it right. And I was surprised because I can't do that. <laughs> I can just sing. But uh, that's their level of development. You know, they're at that stage where they can just sing. Yeah. And then in the, the next stage, um, the upper primary, they, um, some of them drew their, um, their story. They couldn't write it, but they, you know. And then the, the higher level were the ones that wrote their poems and, and were able to adapt it and turn it into a video documentary. Yeah, yeah so... So it's interesting because as we were discussing earlier about literacy, but that is literacy and we can develop literacy skill sets by using songs, by using poems, by using the intelligence that our children have. Is that where sometimes it does fall down when you mention literacy? People don't necessarily think of music and poems and songs. Is that what happens, do you think? Yes, because I think when we talk about literacy, a lot of people just think about reading and writing. But actually, literacy as, is a skill set um, of being able to, to read, to write, to comprehend, to, to make decisions, to, um, to analyze and critically think about things and, you know, selecting how you best can use the, the knowledge and, and the skills that you have. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot. Um, but when it comes to reading, people just don't want to talk about it because reading is not our culture. But if we talk about singing, they would understand it better. I believe that if we develop their literacy skills in their vernacular, this is a good pathway for them to learn any other um, language as well as the skills and knowledge in any other uh, uh, language. So, you know, learning will be interesting because they know what they're, they're learning. Otherwise, they will just drop out because they're not interested. They don't understand what's going on in school. Dr. Rossiani Langi from the University of the South Pacific 
And that story from a little earlier in 2023. Disaster is part of our life, and recovering is also part of our life. As you see, they're smiling despite the devastation. That's how we are. You are listening to Pacific Prepare. This show was made on the lands of the peoples of the Stony Creek Nation in Lutruwita, Tasmania. Pacific Prepared is supported with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, National Broadcasting Corporation of Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Fijian Broadcasting Corporation, Samoa National Radio 2AP, Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation and Tonga Broadcasting Commission. Part of the aim of this program is to start conversations about natural disasters, climate change and how traditional knowledge links them all together. My name's Fred Hooper. Please share any information that you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.